Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. of Mount Doom. There is evil there that does not sleep. Sauron's forces are already moving. They will find the ring and kill the one who carries it. Go, Frodo! Come on, Frodo! I cannot do this alone. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. This task was appointed to you. And if you do not find a way, no one will. The enemy has many spies. Birds. Beasts. Something draws near. I can feel it. Get off the road! Hide! You must remember, Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be far. Let us hope that our presence may go unnoticed.
All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I am your host, Jimbo, and joined by our very own veteran, Terrence. Happy Veterans Day to all you veterans out there. Um, today is our technically uh, episode 50, even though it's probably <laughs> technically more like episode 110, uh, right. with all because some of them I didn't label, some of them we had special Universal Monsters, some of them we had Christmas episodes, some of them we had Mother's Day episodes. So, uh, technically, episode 50, and we will be going diving deep into Middle Earth for the first installment of the trilogy of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> Terrence, <laughs> we just had second breakfast, third breakfast. <laughs> uh, but before we start, I do have a question for you. Let's do it. Um, and if you haven't seen this movie, please stop this recording and go watch this right away. Um, mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> mandatory. <laughs> uh, it's a little uh, like my wife. She doesn't like it. Um, and that's fine. But give it a shot. Watch this whole movie. And then if you don't like it, don't watch the rest of them. But this is one of the most fantastic movies I've ever seen. But before we get going... Hey, Terrence, look, it's, if, if you if you if you don't like it at its Fellowship of the Ring, you don't deserve it at its Two Towers. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not the payoff at Return of the King. Exactly. Uh, so, Terrence, during this movie at the Council of Elrond, where they formed the Fellowship of the Ring, they had Aragorn. They had his bow, Legolas. Or sorry, Aragorn. They had his sword. Legolas. <laughs> they had his bow. Gimli. They had his axe. Terrence, what would you bring to the Fellowship? What would I bring? A lance. I was going to say your appetite. <laughs> <laughs> My appetite. Then I'd just be one of the hobbits. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. uh, a lance. That's hilarious. Um, well, I mean, like, okay, so a lot of people say that, and this just little medieval geekery is this show is going to be full of it. No, but, we're, um, we're going to be here for a long time, so <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> but uh, in, in medieval warfare, you know, uh, a lot. Two of the biggest things that changed medieval warfare, obviously archery, and that was a huge thing. The second thing that just changed the landscape of, of warfare in general, you know, until guns were invented, was the lance. Because um, it not only was effective against cavalry, but it gave you that effective range against your opponent. And it was one of, like, it basically they were, the way they were trained and everything, they were the most effective unit to have in battle was your lancers. But I'd probably bring a mace, you know, the, the swing around. <laughs> um, so, yep. Episode 50, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, we have a lot of information. Uh, this is probably just going to be one gigantic, ginormous episode. Yeah. I was going to break it down into two, but I figured, hey, we'll just give it an extra long episode because it is our 50th. And Terrence is actually awake and not falling asleep, so this is amazing. Right. So, Terrence, let's let's start because it's going to be a long night. Yep. So, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. Boom. Release boom. date, boom. December 19th. 2001 and it's it's crazy to think it's it's, it's been, been that 19 long. years um almost so the budget for this movie is 93 million dollars if you account for inflation that's 163.7 million today now we're gonna get into the gradually bigger numbers <laughs> so opening weekend this made 47.2 million uh, uh, this part that's 69.4 million today and um interesting story uh when this came out uh i was living in fallon nevada my dad was also in the military um i was living in fallon nevada and uh this is when internet was still new and you couldn't find anything or get spoiled so um i had to wait three months after it came out in order to see it on base and uh when i finally did see it i was so excited 
And I enjoyed the movie, and I got really mad at my friend because he fell asleep, and he's like, but it was so boring. And I'm like, what part of it was boring? It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, a little little funny side story. So uh, then we have Gross USA, $315.5 million. Then, if you uh, for today, that's four hundred and sixty-three point nine million. And finally, the big number: <laughs> box office total, eight hundred and eighty-eight point one million dollars. Today, that's one point three trillion dollars. That's a trillion with a T. A T. <laughs> I think that's the second time something's hit the trillion crazy. on the podcast. I think so. Um, this was directed by obviously Peter Jackson. Um, I, I got a couple little tidbits on just kind of the pre-production stage, like the visualization of this. Uh, Jackson actually started visualizing this movie back in '97. Uh, he had storyboards written up. Uh, he even animated some of it uh, to sort of give uh, future cast members. Uh, an idea of what the film style is going to be so they know what they're getting into. Um, He took a lot of inspiration from uh, a lot of different things, but he also didn't want it to be as sort of uh, over-the-top fantasy. He wanted that sort of Braveheart type, like make it feel historic, but at the same time be fantasy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that was really interesting. And he also, uh, a lot of the concept artists... Uh, especially in the early stages, uh, a lot of and even some of the concept art that made it to the final and made it in some of the special features and stuff are very Dungeons and Dragons inspired, and I thought that was really cool. So that's just a little bit of stuff, you know, on on Peter Jackson. I don't even need to go into his work. He's Peter Jackson. <laughs> uh, writing credits, obviously, J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of these amazing books. Uh, the screenplay was written by Fran Walsh, uh, Philippia Boyens. And then Peter Jackson himself. Um, so uh, Peter Jackson was in every stage of this. Uh, he had a hand in the writing. Um, uh, he had a write in, a hand in the editing. You know, you know. Of course, he um, worked with uh, Howard Shore, who was the musical producer for this film. Uh, an amazing, amazing composer. Uh, he wrote so many different scores for this uh and just every every hobbit had its own little had had their own little theme and then every location had their own theme and there's just so many different intricacies in his music that uh there's just so many different scores it's amazing um we got cinematography by andrew uh lesney and this was edited by john gilbert uh originally peter jackson wanted to do this by himself there's no uh, way. <laughs> but he quickly, quickly found out that uh, he, he needed more hands. And so he actually uh, he hired on John Gilbert, who then brought on a couple other people to help out editing because there was a lot to edit. Uh, they had a lot, a lot of really long nights. They had a lot of like 12, 13-hour days just editing, uh, trying to get through the footage and everything. Because, um, I, I, I mean, we've all seen – well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, me and you have seen both the original and the extendeds, mm-hmm. and to think that there's even more footage that didn't make the final cut, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and might I add that when you watch the extended scenes or the extended edition, 
it's like watching a whole new movie because of the it stuff is. that was added. You're like, I don't even remember this it's because it wasn't in there, but it flowed so perfectly with the original. And what's crazy is it's only like 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes in each one. Yeah, uh, and then extra, <laughs> and but it, it just it blends in so nicely, and you're just like, Whoa, but that's man, the thing about these movies is that like this movie is like how long was the runtime? It's 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 something astronomical. Oh yeah, uh, this one is 178 minutes. Okay, which so is that's over 208 minutes extended. That's what I'm saying. So <laughs> I mean that it's it takes a chunk, but it, to me it didn't when I was watching it, it doesn't feel like that because I was so enthralled with the characters I didn't want it to end. Oh yeah, and then when it ended, you were like. I gotta wait for the next one, so. right? <laughs> I'll save all that other information for later. I got tons of stuff today, guys. Oh, well, I got pages. So. <laughs> we all we got, I made Terrence do his own research today. Stuff. It's amazing. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, here's some of the uh, you know more more technical geeky stuff that I like to put down. So some of the cameras used for this uh, filming, we got American Studio Cam, we got Airflex Four. 35 cam and then we have the airflex uh 535 cam uh all with zeiss lenses <clears throat> and uh, uh what's also crazy is like about 3100 shots we're talking 78 of the super 35 film were color graded to color front uh in wellington new zealand uh so a lot of this was edited in wellington and uh queenstown mm-hmm. um and then obviously we all know that uh, New Zealand was their prime uh, location for filming. Uh, and uh, I believe the studio was in Wellington. Uh, so they used uh, 5D Colossus software. And after being scanned by uh, um, Imija uh, XE scanner with a uh, full 2K resolution, uh, the color graded shots were then recorded to a Kodak 542 intermediate film by the Ari Laser film recorders at 10 bits per channel. Uh, so basically what they had to do was a bunch of it was filmed digitally and then but also some of it was filmed on film. So what they had to do was take those digital shots and then bring them back to film. Um, so they had to go through this really long process. Uh, and it, it's just kind of some of the small intricacies that they've done with this movie. They also had a program that rendered um, uh, when they do those long shots of their army. They had they had they created their own program to generate that army. Well, and it helped, like a lot of those were real people. Uh, but they also had a program that helped generate, and uh, this was the first of its kind, which was really right. cool. And Peter Jackson, when they made it, that I forget how many people were in the armies, but he said that each one could have their own different facial distinctions and all that. Oh yeah, and also it would know who were the good guys and who were the bad guys to attack each other in certain ways. Yeah, that's amazing. No, that that's another thing. Just on the the costuming production wise, and I got a lot more for later, but just <laughs> uh, each each. Uh, Orc and Urukai had their own design. Right. Each individual had different distinctions in their armor and their weaponry, and that's just it's super cool. Um, back to the technical stuff. <laughs> uh, this was uh, the distributed resolution was uh, 35 millimeter uh, in the medium of anamorphic. The shooting locations obviously New Zealand. Um, and back over to this other page. <laughs> uh, this was produced by New Line Cinema and Wingnut Films. 
Uh, and this was distrib- distributed by New Line Cinema. And then we went over the run times, 178 normal, 208 minutes extended. Uh, very long movie, but it doesn't feel that long. It's 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 very seamless. You know, you watch it, you get into it, and you're like, oh no, it's over. And the musical <laughs> score just helps carry you right along oh, through absolutely. all your feelings and everything, too. Absolutely. And now, for my favorite part, the awards. Uh a condensed version of his awards because yeah, uh, there it was over 55 so pages worth for me to print out. And awards. I told him, I said, so, I'm not printing all these out. You're going to have to do your own. <laughs> so he cut some of them out. So I, I put, you know, obviously the, the major films. Um, awards, and then I, you mean? And, and, yeah, that's what I meant. Major awards. And then uh, uh, I did some smaller ones that are notable. So obviously we have the Academy Awards USA 2002. They won the, uh, the Oscar for Best Cinematography. It's amazing. There, there's there's uh, no doubt about it. The the cinematography in this movie and the, the movies following is just consistently good. Uh, obviously, Andrew uh, Lesney. Then we have Oscar winner, Best Makeup, Peter Owen uh, and Richard Taylor. Then we have winner, Oscar, Best Music, Original Score, Howard Shore. Winner, Oscar, Best Visual Effects and... Um, uh, yeah, best visual, uh, best effects, visual effects. We got uh, Jim Rigel, Randall William Cook, Richard Taylor, and Mark Steston. Best Oscar nominee for best picture. Uh, then we have nominee best actor supporting role. I am McKellen. Uh, best actor, uh, sorry, best director nominee. Uh, best writing, screenplay, material previously produced or published, nominate it. Uh, all the rest are nominated. So best art direction, uh, set decoration, best costume design, best film editing, best music, uh, original song, and uh, best sound. So that's all for nominations. So they won, and then they were nominated for so much Basically more. Basically everything else. <laughs> Then we have the Golden Globes, USA 2002. So we have just nominations. They didn't win any Golden Golden Globes. Uh, But they got Best Picture, Drama, uh, all these nominations. Best Director, Motion Picture. Best Original Score, Motion Picture. uh, Best Song, Motion Picture. Then we have the BAFTA Awards, the British Academy Film Awards, where they did win some stuff. So they, uh, they got the Audience Award. They got the uh, BAFTA Film Award for Best Film. Uh, obviously, you know, Peter Jackson, Brian M. Osborne, and Tim Sanders. Uh, film Award for Best Achievement in Special Visual Effects. Uh, film Award Best Makeup and Hair. Da- uh, sorry. <laughs> I got to really... You need some glasses. I know, day. right? <laughs> Eyes are starting to go out. Uh, David Lean Award for Direction. Uh, Anthony Asquish Award for Film Music, BAFTA Children's Award, Feature Film, and then on to nominations, Best Screenplay, Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role, I am McKellen, uh, then we have Film Award, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, Best Costume, Best Editing, and Best Sound. Uh, that's all nominations, and that's the... BAFTA Award. And now on to one of our favorites, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. I thought she was going to say the Golden Schmooze. <laughs> the Golden Schmooze. 
Just you wait. All right. Uh, this is in 2012. Uh, so it was nominated for the Saturn Award of Best DVD Collection, obviously the collection of all of them. Then uh, we have Academy Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, the day it came out, or not the, the year it came out, uh, to which they won Best Fantasy Film, Best Supporting Actor, Ian McKellen, Best Director, Peter Jackson, the SNES P. Gene Face... For the Future Award, male, Orlando Bloom. And then they were nominated for Best Writing, Best Music, Best Costume, Best Makeup, Best Special Effects. Which is the consistency here. And then uh, here's all the countries that they had awards for that I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm blasting through just so you can see how worldwide this was renowned. Uh, there's uh, They won awards and Australia, Japan, Germany, Czech Republic, Denmark, UK, Canada, and Turkey. Those are all the awards that were overseas, um, which the only big overseas one that we constantly cover is the BAFTA. Uh, and then now, the Golden Schmooze. Oh, it's in there. <laughs> I didn't know it'd be in there. It's in here. The Golden Schmooze Awards. And uh, we'll start from the most recent, 2011. It won Golden Schmooze for Best DVD Blu-ray of the Year uh, for the DVD collection, hmm. obviously. Uh, then we have 2002, where it Again, won the Golden Smooths for Best DVD of the Year. Uh, the 2011 was probably for the extendeds. Well, 2000, uh, the, the 2001 two was probably just it by itself. That's true. Yeah, and uh, even even the originals had lots of. Uh, 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 why am I blanking on so many words today? Uh, special features, right? Um, and then they the extendeds brought in. Three hours of special features for each movie. It was like three, four hours of special features. Love it all. Uh, Golden Schmooze, 2001. So the year came out. So they won Favorite Movie of the Year, Best Special Effects of the Year, Best Supporting Actor of the Year, Ian McKellen, uh, Favorite Movie Poster of the Year. That's the first time we've seen an award for a Mm -hmm. movie poster. Uh, Best Trailer of the Year. Once again, that's a first. We haven't heard Best Trailer. Uh, best action sequence of the year, most memorable scene in a movie, and those are all the winnings. Uh, so they were nominated for <laughs> they oh. were nominated for most overrated movie of the year. <laughs> <laughs> that would go to another movie um, when I double back to something I should have read before. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to wait till after you got done with the awards and then tell you, hey, what other movies came out at that time? That's you know right. what I mean? Uh, so, ah, yes, nominations. Uh, so, uh, da, 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 where was I? I have lost my place. Well, we haven't even got to any names yet that you've messed up, so I had to expect something Yay. in here. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there we go. Uh, Best Supporting Actor of the Year, uh, v- Vigo Mortensen. Uh, Breakthrough Performance of the Year, Elijah Wood. That's right. Uh, he he debuted on this movie, right? Mm-mm. Or, I don't think so. No. Well, I mean, this is what put him on the map. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then Breakthrough Performance of the Year for Orlando Bloom. Uh, best Action Sequence of the Year, Best Line of the Year, and Best Screenplay of the Year. That's all four nominations. Oh, and Coolest Character of the Year, Coolest Character of the Year, Best Music in a Movie. Who was the Coolest Character of the Year? It does, does it? not say. Any I of them take did. your pick, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? 
That's probably why they left it blank. Just whoever you want to go here. <laughs> uh, then we have the Grammy Awards 2003. Uh, they won Best Soundtrack Album for a Motion Picture, Television, or Other Visual Media. And then they were nominated for Best Song Written for a Motion Picture, Television, or Other Visual Media. And then Hugo Awards 2002. Uh, they won a Hugo for Best Dramatic Presentation. Oh, that's all my awards. Yay. So now we will double back <laughs> to box circle. office numbers. Well, box office. I didn't. I forgot to write down the numbers. Uh, but I have box office weekend. I have the top five. Uh, so the weekend that – so th- this came out during like a Wednesday or Thursday the, the, when this uh, first hit theaters. Uh, so this is for that weekend uh, following its release. Into theaters. So number one, we have Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Number two, we have Ocean's Eleven. Number three, we have Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius. <laughs> number four, Vanilla Sky. And number five, How High. I cannot believe How High is on this list. I just can't believe it. And then we have uh, the box office for all of 2001. I'm going to disagree wholeheartedly here in a second. <laughs> so number one, we have Harry Potter no. and the Sorcerer's Stone. No, just stop. <laughs> number two, we have Shrek. I'll give you that one. I like Number Shrek. three, we have Monsters, Inc. like that one, too. Number four, we have Rush Hour 2. I like that I one, too. I absolutely love that movie yeah. when that came out. Uh, and then number five, we have The Mummy Returns. <laughs> and then down at number ten, we have Lord of the Rings. All right. So I, I, I'm, not even, I'm just going to hold my comments in there because we could go down a whole other rabbit trail. But has words. Here, what I want you to do right now is I want you – to give me a synopsis of the Fellowship of the Ring, just the Fellowship of the Ring, because I didn't write one down. I just want you to come off the top of your head. If you were trying to get somebody to watch this movie and you said, hey, this is what this movie is about, what would you tell them that the synopsis of the movie is to get them to watch the movie? Because I didn't write one down this time. Gotcha. A little bit on the spot, let me think. All right, so I would say the synopsis of this movie is uh, this movie follows the journey of a fellowship uh, <laughs> of the ring, <laughs> of the ring. <laughs> uh, that consists of a group from uh, all different fantasy races of this uh, fantasy realm, and they they all have one goal, which is to get this ring to Mount Doom. And what, what, what's the purpose of taking it to Mount Doom? It's evil. The only way to destroy this ring is to throw it into the mountain of Mount Doom, which is a volcano. Which is where it was forged which to begin. Which is where it was forged, yes. All right, so we're going to go ahead and talk about the cast. Um, a lot of people here, and a lot of people who were going to play this and didn't play it. Um, so we'll start. Um, Elijah Wood played Mr. Frodo Baggins. Frodo Baggins. He was a young hobbit who inherits the One Ring from his uncle Bilbo. Wood was the first actor to be cast on July 7, 1999. He was a big fan of the book, and they said for his audition tape, he actually dressed up in, like, britches and the, the shirt and was out in the field reading for the part. So, uh, But he beat out, like, 150 other actors for the part, so I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, somebody that auditioned was Jake Gyllenhaal. So next, we have uh, Ian McKellen, who played Gandalf, Gandalf the, Grey. the Grey. He was an ins- a starry wizard and a mentor to Frodo. Uh, and R.I.P. Sean Connery because uh, we just lost him sadly uh, last week. But uh, 
he actually was uh, offered the role, but he's like, I don't understand the script. And uh, <laughs> I said this when I put out the episode about his remembering Sean Connery that uh, he said, I turned down Lord of the Rings because I didn't understand it. And he's like, so I took League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He's like, I still didn't understand it, but I wasn't going to turn it down because they said that he lost $450 million by not doing the Gandalf. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, like, honestly, I, I am McKellen. He's, he's one of my absolute favorite actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love him in every role he's in, and I'm, I'm really glad that he got the part. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, Sir Patrick Stewart, he uh, obviously is Jean-Luc Picard, but he didn't like the script. All these guys that we're saying have fantastic voices, oh, yeah, too, yeah, yeah. so I can see any of them being I, I absolutely could see um, Stewart before being this. cast, McKellen had to sort his schedule with 20th Century Fox as there was a two-month overlap with X-Men. <laughs> uh, but he, he said he, that he uh, also enjoyed playing Gandalf the Grey more than in the next two films when he played Gandalf the White. Oh, yeah. And I think you could tell because he's more down-to-earth and more, I don't know, friendly with everybody, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. But, it's you know, the world's ending, you know what I mean? What, what are you going to do? Um, some other people, that uh, Christopher Plummer, uh, Sam Neill from Jurassic Park, uh, Bernard Hill who later became King Theoden in the next two films. Uh, Patrick McGuhan and Sir Nigel Hawthorne all were part uh, for uh, Gandalf. Uh, then we have Viggo Mortensen uh, played Aragorn, or else known as Strider. Um, he's a Dundane ranger and heir to Gondor's throne. Uh, Nicholas Cage received an offer, but he declined it <laughs> because of family obligations. I'm glad he did. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> was also offered the part at the beginning of pre-production, but he turned it down. Uh, Vin Diesel <laughs> was a fan of the book, so he auditioned for Aragorn. Uh, Stuart Townsend was cast for the role, but be- uh, before being replaced during filming when Jackson realized he was too young. Uh, Russell Crowe was also considered as a replacement, but he turned it down after taking what I thought was a similar role to his movie Gladiator. Uh, Daniel boy, was Day- he wrong? Huh? <laughs> I said, boy, was he wrong? <laughs> well, I mean, he probably didn't want to get typecasted as those. Yeah, that's uh, true. Daniel Day-Lewis was offered the role a second time, but he declined it once again. Man. <laughs> I was what like, wow. That's that. Uh, but um, uh, Morton had read the book on the on the plane when he received, uh, and he was a, uh, received a crash court in, in fencing from Bob yeah. Anderson, who's one of the greatest swordsman uh, teachers of all time. So I mean, uh, okay, so Vigo... Uh, it, just throughout this and and you know the the future podcast where we do the other two movies, uh, he really immersed himself in this movie. <clears throat> he used to carry his sword around yeah. everywhere he went. He would put he, it he, down. he would put he would put dirt on his clothing to make it more authentic. He would carry his sword around. And he got stopped and, by the police uh, several times. They said, yeah. <laughs> you know and uh, he he would constantly just be just in the environment and just really enjoying. Uh, just kind of being out in nature and they catch him fishing all the time. And uh, yeah, he, he, there's just so much about, about just him in particular in this movie. It, it could be its own podcast. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, then we have Sean Aston who played Samwise Gamgee. He was the Hobbit gardener and Frodo's best friend. Um, uh, Sean Austin had recently become a father. So he bonded with uh, the then 18 year old Elijah Wood in a protective manner, which mirrored their relationship with Frodo. Um, also James, uh, uh, Gordon or Corden, sorry, James Corden, uh, the comedian said that this was one of the first roles that he ever auditioned for. Hmm. Uh, Liv Tyler as Arwen. She was the, uh, elven princess of Rivendell and Aragorn's lover. Um, actress Helen Bohan Carter had expressed interest in the role. Um, 
But she also, uh, one thing, well, we'll talk about it when we get to notes. There's so much notes here. I'm going to be flying around oh, yeah. all over the place because I, I could, there's no literal way to sort these notes out or it would take a find year. Find the interesting stuff. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, it's all interesting, but yeah. Kate Blanchett played Galadriel. Uh, she was the elven co-ruler of Lothlorien alongside her husband, uh, Celeborn or Celeborn, whatever you want to say. Uh, but her contract, she only had to film for one month. Yeah, I mean, if if you really think about it, uh, uh, she she just has a handful of scenes. Um, but actually, but when you think about it, it's it's insane just because those couple scenes took a month, right? Right. And you think about some of uh, the other movies we've covered, and like that's their entire movie, like <laughs> filming. It's, right. It's crazy. John Reese Davies played Gimli, a dwarf warrior who accompanies the Fellowship to Mordor. Uh, Billy Conley, who uh, was a concern for the party, Gimli, would later play Dane the Second Ironfoot in Peter Jackson's The Hobbit film trilogy. Uh, these are some interesting people that. Uh, well, Reese Davies was also scheduled uh, or also played Gimli's father, Gloin, during the scene where the fellowship is forged. Uh, but man, Warwick Davis. I wish Warwick Davis could this. Because <laughs> if they could take. Elijah Wood into them and shrink them. They could have took it the other way and made Warwick Davis bigger. You know what I mean? Right, and right. I think I just love him so much in Willow. That's one of my favorite all-time movies. Uh, then Timothy Spall, uh, Robert Trenbar, and Bill Bailey were also considered. Uh, Billy Boyd played Paragon Took. Uh, he's better known as Pippin throughout the movie. And then you have Dominic Monaghan, uh, Mari- Mariotic Brandybuck, better known as Mary, who was a distant cousin to Frodo. Uh, he actually started off by uh, auditioning for Frodo, but then was cast as Mary. Yep. Orlando Bloom as Legolas Greenleaf. He was a prince of the elves, woodland realm, and a skilled archer. Bloom initially auditioned for Faramir, who appears in the second film, a role which went to David Wenham, which we'll talk about that when we cover the two towers at some point during our career. <laughs> Um, Christopher Lee as Saruman the White, the fallen head of the Starry Order who succumbs to Saruman's will through the, the use of his Palantir. All right, get this. Lee, such an amazing get this. actor. He was a major fan of the book. He read it once a year. That's awesome. His entire life he read it once a year, and he was the only cast member to ever met J.R.R. Tolkien in real life. That makes sense. He originally auditioned for Gandalf, but he was deemed too old. <laughs> now get this. Here's some people that auditioned for this. Tim Curry. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy Irons and Malcolm McDowell. Why are you looking at me like that? You're just trying to think of Tim Curry <laughs> no, doing it. No, no. Oh, yeah. I was, a, I was definitely I'm like, I can 100%, 100% see like Tim Curry, Curry doing that. <laughs> Be great. Uh, Hugo Weaving as Elrond, the elven lord of Rivendell who leads the Council of Elrond, uh, which ultimately decides to destroy the ring. And you know how we always say our podcasts always basically fall back to another episode we've done? Yeah. David Bowie expressed <laughs> interest in this role, but Jackson stated, and I quote, to have a famous, beloved character and a famous star colliding is slightly uncomfortable. So, <laughs> <laughs> I can just see him doing the dance, magic dance from Larry. Oh, I know. Right. Well, I think, <laughs> the I think they, did a, they did a great job in, in, in casting Hugo Weaving just because the, the character is very stoic and Hugo Weaving's very well, good at the, doing just like Yeah, stoic. but I always... I always think of Mr. Anderson because of the <laughs> Matrix trilogy yeah. he was in. You know, he's been in some, a lot of stuff. Uh, Sean Bean played Boromir. Uh, he was the prince of the stewards of Gondor who journeys with the fellowship towards Mordor. Bruce Willis, a fan of the book, expressed interest in this role. 
And then also Liam Neeson was sent the script, but he passed on it. I wonder how many of these actors are like, I could have had that. That could have right? been me. You know, especially <laughs> Bruce Willis because he was famous for, you know, I think it was what the Sixth Sense where he signed a, the contract, but he signed a percentage of the yep. uh, box office. Excuse me. Instead of uh, <clears throat> taking, uh, uh, I think he just took a flat sum of the box office and then went, like was it. Right. right, but but no, but for the six cents he took, up instead of taking a flat sum, he took like I forget the amount. We said it, the amount, and then he took like a twenty percent of the box office or something because yeah. I didn't think it was going to be that that perceived that well. Uh, Ian Holm played Bilbo Baggins. He did such a great mm-hmm. job. Uh, he's Frodo's uncle who gives him the ring after he decides to retire uh, Riverdale. Um, what most people don't know about this movie is this movie is actually a sequel. To The Hobbit. Um, it was written after The Hobbit, which is, tells the story of Bilbo, how he finds the ring and all that. So and, and um, his whole journey to it. His whole they journey. Three right. not so great movies about it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I still liked them. Uh, Sylvester McCoy, who later would play Radagast, the brown wizard in The Hobbit, was contacted about playing this role. And he was kept in place as a potential Bilbo for six months before Jackson went with Ian Holm. Um, and he was also, Holm was also uh, previously played Frodo in a 1981 radio adaption of Lord of the Rings. That's pretty awesome. Yep. And he was only cast after uh, Peter Jackson remembered his performance, too. As uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Andy Serkis played Gollum, and he did the voice and the motion capture. He, I remember seeing him with all those green, oh, the green yeah. sea with all the bulbs on him. Well, uh, he, what's really funny is, like, the, the actor is, like, obviously Gollum's a very an, animated character, but, like, even the actor himself, he... His facial expressions are very animated, and 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 it's, it's uh, you, if you see behind the scenes of him acting, it's really cool. Out Gollum, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, um, I actually have a Gollum cardboard cutout over here in my studio, so uh, I really liked his performance. Every um, now and then, he looks at it and goes, "Hey, hey Terrence, I need the." Oh wait, no, that's, that's, that's my Terrence. Gollum poster. Uh, <laughs> hey, at least he shows up to record every week. <laughs> A uh, wretched Hobbit-like creature whose mind was poisoned by the ring after burying it for centuries. Um, he's only in this movie for a little bit, um, and it wasn't the finished product you see, especially in the Two Towers and Return of the King. Yeah, you only seen glimpses and pieces of him. Um, some other of the cast is you had Salah uh, Baker as Sauron the Deceiver, who was the Dark Lord of Mordor and the One Ring's true master. Uh, Martin Soskis. Soskis. As uh, Celeborn the Wise, uh, the Elven Lord of Lothorian and Galadriel's husband. Uh, Craig Parker as Haldir, the leader of the Galadriel warriors guarding the border of Lothorian. Lawrence McCorey as Lurtz, the commander of Sauron's orc forces. Mark Ferguson as Arianian Gilgalad, the last Elven king of Noldor. Peter Mackenzie as Elendil the Tall, the last high king of Arnor and Gondor. And Harry Sinclair as Isildur, Elendil's son and Aragorn's ancestor who originally defeated Sauron. Do it now. Throw it to the fire. <laughs> Isildur. <laughs> oh, no, it's going to be a long night. But a long night. So here we go. We're here. I've got pages. Terrence has got pages and notes. So this is this is where it's going to get interesting. And we'll probably go down a couple of rabbit trails. I'm sure as we say something, somebody else oh, will have yeah. something to say. So, But we're going to try to get through it. <laughs> um. Sadly, you know, notes <laughs> <laughs> for once. Um, we said that Christopher Lee read uh, Lord of the Rings once a year until his, he died in 2015. So um, that's just crazy that he actually got to meet J.R. Tolkien. I like that. Uh, director Peter Jackson gave uh, one each of the rings used in the movies to Elijah Wood and Andy Serkis as a gift when the shoot was finished. They both thought that they had the only one. 
<laughs> that's great. <laughs> Look what I got. <laughs> He's like, oh, Look what I, I have it. And then, oh, that's great. Uh, Gandalf's painful encounter with a ceiling beam in Bilbo's Hobbit hole was not in the script. Sir Ian McKellen banged his forehead against the beam accidentally. Peter Jackson thought McKellen did a great job acting through the mistake. He kept it in. <laughs> it's so funny, too. I know, right? And and it's funny because that happens throughout this film and, and the, the, the preceding films of just kind of these things happening, but them seeing also kind of making the world feel so organic. And right. that also just goes to show how amazing all these actors are. Oh, yeah. Um, most of the membership uh, of the Fellowship took up surfing in New Zealand in their spare time. Uh, Viggo Morrison once wiped out terribly one day and bruised one whole side of his face. The next day, makeup artists tried to mask the bruising and swelling, but were unsuccessful. Instead, Peter Jackson opted to film uh, Mortensen from one side for the entire scene in the minds of Moria. When they find the tomb, Aragorn is only seen from one side in the whole scene. <laughs> Talk about How'd you get a that workaround. Wipeout. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the cast often had to fly remote uh, locations by helicopter. Sean Beam, who played Boromir, was afraid of flying and would only do it when absolutely necessary. When they were shooting the scenes of the Fellowship crossing the snowy mountains, he'd spend two hours every morning climbing from the base of the mountain to the set near the top, already dressed as Boromir. The crew being flown up could see him from their helicopters. Man. That is dedication, right? Two hours and in full costume. Right? Man. I don't know if I can do it. extremely fit. Gimli the Dwarf, who was played by John Reese davies is the tallest of the actors who plays members of the Fellowship. He is six foot one. Which is hilarious. In the scene, he is probably the smallest character besides the Hobbit. Um, Viggo Morrison did all of his own stunts, uh, and he only insists on using the real steel sword instead of significantly lighter aluminum swords or safer rubber swords, which were manufactured for battle scenes and stunts. So he took it really to heart. Oh, yeah. Um, Orlando Bloom landed this role of Legolas two days before he finished drama school. Wow. That's Talk about breakthrough role. I didn't realize this was like, he got done, he's like audition for this and like no he wow, got it two days it. before he finished drama school no i'm saying like oh, oh yeah yeah yeah. so right before he finished he goes oh i'll audition, I'll audition for this that. and then and then he also did pirates of the it. caribbean too so. and then right after yeah, yeah so he's been in a lot of stuff too um here's here's what we were talking about a little bit earlier for the high-tech task a computer program called massive made armies of cgi orcs elves and humans these digital creations could think and battle independently, identifying friend or foe thanks to individual fields of vision. Director Peter Jackson's team could click on one creature in a crowd scene of 20,000 and see through their eyes. Different species even boost different fighting techniques. Yeah. that's it, it, and, and this is a software that was, that was unique for the time. It was the first of its kind. Uh, so it, it's pretty interesting how much... How many breakthrough things that this movie did. Uh, also, it was the, one of the biggest challenges was doing that forced perspective is because mm-hmm. they had actors of varying heights and sizes and portraying characters that are a lot smaller or bigger. I mean, like hobbits in the book are about three foot six. Well, and Elijah's, you know, five foot six. <laughs> right. Well, and I've got the picture over there. Um, I'll put it on the Facebook group page, but it's me and uh, Patrick. Good night one of my best friends, and when they had the Lord of the Rings convention come through, or not convention, oh, they had yeah, the, yeah. Uh, um, it's not a convention, what do you call it, uh, exhibit, I guess. Yeah, and they the have the, state the carriage. Fair, and they have the carriage here of Gandalf, and if you sat on one side of the carriage, and I sat on the other side, of the, or he sat on one side of the carriage, I sat on the other carriage, one of us was taller, and the other one was shrunk down like Hobbit, and then yep. we would switch spots, 
and I would be tall and he would be short. Um, and I, it was really cool to see how they did that because it wasn't forced perspective. It's just how they had the camera angles. Yeah, so uh, and that's exactly what it is. You know, right. so uh, they had to deal with that. You know, throughout all the movies, and um, there's a lot. There's some of them took multi takes, but uh, some of it was forced perspective. And then there was a uh, you know couple scenes with um, they had uh, stump doubles. Uh, uh, that were more according to height. Uh, a lot of things that they went through in order to um, to do this. It's it's crazy. Um, originally, you know, the opening narration, the prologue. Um, yeah, it's spoken by Kate Blanchett. Um, they finally who played Galadriel. Um, so they wanted to they wanted to show that it was the timelessness of the elves because they gave it to her. Uh, but originally, the narration of the prologue was spoken by Elijah Wood, who played Frodo. Um, but they felt it was the information part. It had little bearing on the character of Frodo. Also, uh, Gandalf also recorded a narration, but once again, it was felt that Gandalf wasn't the right character to speak it. Neither he nor Frodo pre- uh, was present at the events described in the, prog- uh, the prologue. So they figured an elf, they'd been around forever. So uh, it only made sense for them to let her do it. So Yeah. And she did a well job. And, oh, yeah. And what I liked about the prologue is it set the entire story up well done where you could understand it. You know what I mean? Because you have that whole prologue, then you have, what, the seven-minute thing of Bilbo talking about the hobbits, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. how, what kind of people the hobbits are and all that. I thought that was really well done. Uh, the Elvish language uh, spoken in the movie are not just quotes from the book. They were derived from J.R.R. Tolkien's own limited dictionary of that language. Uh, dialect coach Andrew Jack used recordings of Tolkien reading his books to guide the actors and actresses' pronunciations. So here's, here's what's really interesting uh, about the book. Um... And just about the characters' names in general is uh, Tolkien is is such such a madman when he comes to story writing. I mean, he he, he definitely went in this complete uh, just immersive direction uh, that you know he he wrote his its own language and everything. But um, the books uh, that he wrote are like treated like fictionally treated as they're translated from Hobbit. So all the names uh, of the hobbits are translated from a hobbit language. So that's not what their actual names are. Um, I'll let you stuff a bunch of other facts because I, I got to find uh, my notes where it, it shows their actual hobbit names. But <laughs> the, the, I thought that was really interesting how he did that. So not only is this a, this whole language, but the books themselves are treated as translated from Well, I think if you look something. at the... I have like the all the trilogy together, and I think at the back of the book has the dictionaries in it of all the languages. You know what I mean? Uh, when Pippin is being hit with the apples after asking about a second breakfast, it is Aragorn chucking the apples at his head. They had to shoot the scene 16 times to get it just right. Oh, and no. Pippin says he believes that Aragorn enjoyed himself immensely that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see here. The movie The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King were filmed simultaneously. The back-to-back-to-back shoot lasted a record equaling 274 days in 16 months, exactly the same time as taken for the principal photography of Apocalypse Now in 1979. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Aragorn, who is trilingual in English, Spanish, and Danish, requested the script be revised to let Aragorn speak more of his lines in Elvish. Huh. So I'm telling you, he is just going... He's in the character, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I like how everybody just really immersed themselves. And, and it shows. Like, the, the, the loving care that went into this movie, uh, just from top to bottom, everybody put 110. Oh, yeah. Um, 
veteran swordmaster Bob Anderson called uh, Vigo Mortensen the best swordsman I've ever trained. And he's trained a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Um, Vigo Mortensen also purchased Arwen's horse after production and gave it to Liv Tyler's riding double, Jane Abbott. Huh. That's pretty cool. Yeah, right? Uh, uh, so- you know, I really think he really liked this movie. Oh, yeah. I just think, um, I just think he's one of those ones that just took it to heart and just... Nailed I mean, every, every everybody did. Uh, they, I think, um, that was some time ago. That I mean, every now and then they still do meetups and they they all get together. Well, and, they all got tattoos. Yeah, the the original fellowship all got tattoos. That's <laughs> the, awesome. The, the one in Elvin or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I put it in or not. Uh, we'll find oh, out. So here's the uh, here's some yeah, of the original names. So, Peregrine, uh, his hobbit, the actual hobbit name is Resonar. Uh, then we have, uh, Meriduk, Mary, uh, whose actual name is Kelamak. And then we have Frodo, who's actually Mura. So <laughs> these are all like, uh, that, that's how much token, uh, went deep into this is all the names are just translations from actual Hobbit. And I, I just think that's really cool. Although in the movie it only seems to be a few weeks or so, the time between Gandalf leaves to research for the ring and tries to find Gollum and returns to send Frodo on his adventure is a span of 17 years. <laughs> but it's only a short amount of time in the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I thought because it makes you think it's right away, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, well, in, in general, it, uh, I, I think just throughout the, the movies, it, it sometimes it's hard to... That, I, I think that was the only thing that was ever sort of confusing is getting a grasp of how long things took to do or how long it took to travel um, unless they gave specific like, oh, I'll be back in this many days. And you're like, okay, all right, it's been this many days. But other than that, uh, sometimes it's hard to grasp uh, the time it takes for them to travel from point A to point B. Right. Um, I think this is one of the coolest things right here is that Hobbiton uh, was a, made a whole year before production began to make it look like it was natural, lived in place complete with real vegetable patches, the Greens Department regulated the length of the grass by having sheep eat it. <laughs> I just think it's so cool That's that they great. went a year in advance to grow something yeah. to make it look natural. Uh, Viggo Morrison chipped a tooth while filming a fight sequence. He wanted Peter Jackson to super glue it back on so he could finish his fight scene, but Jackson <laughs> took him to the dentist on his lunch break, had it patched up, and returned to the set that afternoon. <laughs> this guy. Vigo's a madman. Yeah, he is. I love him. Um, when the dragon firework goes off at the party, the shriek heard is actually Billy Boyd actually screaming. As he was unaware at the time that the firework was really going to explode on set, uh, he thought it was going to be a separate shoot uh, or separate shot. It was uh, not scripted, but he take it up. Uh, but the take ended up in the final cut. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> That's always um, great when that stuff like that happens. Uh, like we said that uh, Christopher Lee was the first person to be cast in this trilogy um, but he was the only one that had met Tolkien face to face like we've said but because of his extensive knowledge of the books he frequently visited the makeup department and often gave tips about the facial design of the monsters oh that's great so he was very hands on you know what I mean yeah. he's like no 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 this is what Tolkien told me <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Council of Elrond was changed quite a bit from the book um, but uh, so much so that even while filming it was being changed, um, the screenwriters decided to change it between the uh, from a fierce debate to where Frodo makes his decision, but keeps 
uh, order of the coring parties was quite a challenge because the scene was starting to get too long and expository. It was rewritten even during filming. Boromir's speech at the council was read from a sheet of paper sitting on Sean Bean's lap that was only given to him the night before. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's that's great. Uh, you know, so he said they're rubbing his head. He's probably looking down at that paper, you know, like, well, what's my next line, you know? And then and then delivers it spot on. That's yep. that's a uh, that's great acting right there. Um, yep. I, I had I had a little bit throughout because we were talking about Hobbiton and sort of uh, a lot of care that went into uh, creating that scene. Um, so this was filmed all over New Zealand, and uh, and some of the filming locations were done on uh, uh, national parks and, and stuff like that, uh, protected areas. Um, and then there was concern about some of the locations they were filming in. Uh, but what happened was, uh, so Wingnut Films Limited were granted per uh, a permit uh, or concession from the Department of Conservation in New Zealand uh, to film in these areas. But since everything happened so fast, uh, there were some things that kind of slipped through the cracks that they were, they said that they could do, but incorrectly basically allowed them to do activities such as uh fantasy filming uh vehicles going off road and stuff like that so uh there was a little bit of damage done in the, some of these areas due to filming um and there was a a team that had to come in and uh clean up after that and basically restore these areas to make sure that they went back to their their natural state and um, they actually won an award for it. I'm trying to find the name here. Uh, I got so much down. Um, unlike your notes, mine's are all just everywhere and written in <laughs> Now you see ways. what I do every single week. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll keep going until you find yeah. it. Um, Sean Aston gained 30 pounds to play the role of Sam. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think you got that tonight while we were eating. Uh, Liv Tyler accidentally stabbed herself in the right thigh when filming the If You Want Him, Come and Claim Him sequence. The footage was featured in bloopers and outtakes. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Liv Tyler deepened her voice so much to play Arwen that her father, Stephen Tyler, asked her if her voice had been dubbed by someone else. <laughs> um, the filming of this trilogy pumped about $200 million into the New Zealand economy. The New Zealand government even created a minister for the Lord of the Rings, whose remnant was to exploit all the economic opportunities the movies represented. Hmm. Orlando Bloom originally auditioned for the part of Faramir, like we said. Yeah. Um, I, I can't believe that he went for that, and they said, "Oh no, come back. We want you to read for Legolas." You know, right? Maybe they impressed him. He impressed him so much, and I guess he was so. still in film school. You know, what I mean, I'd be flabbergasted. Well, I mean, he definitely brought in. Uh, 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 chunk of an audience himself um because I, I remember after seeing this movie uh and give you an idea i was like i was 11 when this came out <laughs> but I, I definitely remember you know uh particularly probably during the second movie though um was seeing orlando bloom's picture as legolas and a lot of girls binders. oh yeah yeah <laughs> oh, the, girl, he, the girls had a lot of those pictures um the uh, the different color of the blues for the elves' eyes revealed what race they were. The Lothlorien elves had light blue eyes, and the Rivendell elves' eyes were dark blue. Oh, That's something okay. I never never picked right? up on. Small details. Right. Uh, two sets of Bag End were made, Bilbo Baggins' house. Um, one to accommodate the hobbits. The other, 33% smaller for the full-size Ian McKellen, right down to smaller versions of the books on the bookshelves. Oh. So there you go. 
the hobbits needed to appear about three to four feet tall, tiny compared with a seven foot Gandalf. <laughs> this was often accompanied using the force perspective like we talked about with Sir Ian McKellen, who was Gandalf, consistently closer to the camera than Elijah Wood. In order to trick the eye into thinking McKellen is towering, in some cases the camera would be moving, something that would not uh, normally break the effect. So special props and sets were designed to maintain the illusion in camera. The two most renowned Tolkien artists are Alan Lee and John Howe. So it's very important to Peter Jackson to have these two on board. Lee was tracked down to a tiny little village in Dartmoor, England, and was FedExed a package of Jackson's Heavenly Creatures from 1994 and a letter outlining his intentions. They monitored the progress of the FedEx package every single step of the way, but were somewhat surprised when Lee rang them only three hours after the delivery <laughs> to say he'd love to work with them. Howe, meanwhile, was living in Switzerland, and because someone hadn't worked out the time differences between Switzerland and New Zealand correctly, he was called at about 2 a.m. He says the biggest frustration with that phone call was waiting for Jackson to finish the pitch before he could get his yes out. That's, that's <laughs> So great. these guys were definitely on board. They were probably like, we've been waiting our whole life for this. Now, now uh, what's, what's crazy is this: they joined in when he was doing storyboarding. So this is back in 1997. Yeah. Uh, the original cut, are you ready for this? Ran for four hours and 30 minutes. I would have loved to have seen that. I'd, that. I'd watch it. I'd, I'd watch every minute of it. Yeah, multiple times. <laughs> um, Orlando Bloom uh, did most of his own stunts. He even broke a rib in the process. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen based Gandalf's accent on that of J.R.R. Tolkien. That's amazing. Uh, he probably got a lot of that from uh, Christopher Lee, I would mm -hmm. say. Uh, in one take of the Buckleberry Ferry scene, Elijah Wood overshot his jump and ended up in the river instead of the ferry. <laughs> <laughs> the moth to which Gandalf whispers on top of the tower was born shortly before filming that day and died soon after the scene was finished. Because it was one of those ones that yeah, just lived in yeah. Um a rubber puppet with a horrific face was superimposed over C.E.L. Holmes' face when Bilbo Baggins covets the ring in Rivendell. Holmes was so delighted with the puppet that the design team had a cast-iron version of it made for his mantelpiece and gave it to him as a parting gift when Holmes wrapped all of the, the scenes up for the movie. Is that, is that talking about the... Um, you remember when he's like, it's my animation, you know, yeah. his face is like that? that I, I remember being so creeped out when that happened. Yeah, like, oh, it was very what? cool. Um... See, here's another thing. With John Reese davies who played Gimli, suffered from a reaction to his prosthetics, uh, usually inflammation around his eyes. Uh, that meant he could never be filmed on consecutive days and would always require at least a day off uh, for his skin to return to normal. He was never anything less than three hours in the makeup chair. Wow. And he was the biggest, the tallest actor. Yeah. Uh, costume designer Nagila Dixon had 40 seamstress working for her, creating over 19,000 costumes. There's a lot of care that went into just the the props, the costumes, the armor. Um, and even though there was, like we were talking about earlier, some of them were generated uh, through CGI. Um, but they also had a lot of people, a, a lot of the... Uh, Orcs, Urukai, elves, um, and, and and a lot of different scenes uh, are you know actual people, and they they, they created over forty eight thousand pieces of armor for this movie. All uh, right, Terrence. Right now, you had to pick between the Urukai or the Moria orcs. Who are you taking? Uh, like, who am I going against? Or who are you taking? As your two's going to win. 
Oh, your, like between the memorial uh, orcs or the Urukai? I guess it depends on the landscape because obviously, if they're, I in... think there's more Moria orcs personally because <laughs> some things came, just came out of nowhere. That is also true. Um, Bilbo Baggins' birthday cake had 111 candles on it, and they eventually set fire to the cake. <laughs> uh, Legolas's arrows in the final battle are computer generated. It would have been physically impossible for even the most gifted archer to fire off so many arrows so quickly. <laughs> uh, That's hilarious. Yeah. When you see Frodo and Gandalf sitting on the cart at the beginning, the, that's the forced perspective I was talking about. He was actually three feet behind Sir Ian McKellen, yep. even though they were sitting together. Yeah. Um, throughout the trilogy, the color of Legolas's eyes changed from blue to brown. This is because the contact lenses Orlando Bloom was wearing scratched his corneas and could oh, not no. be worn every day. In some of the shots, the post-production team changed his color of his eyes, and some of them are still brown, and we'll get to a couple of them here in a little bit. See, there we go again. Once again, we're reading on a movie where contacts are really hurting people. Why don't they just stop doing contacts? You know? <laughs> we have the technology. Right. Uh, before production began, it, it was to be determined whether a computer fix could convincingly create battle scenes featuring thousands of warriors. Peter Jackson invested his own money in the pursuit of this software using the computers of special effects company Weta Digital LTD that had been purchased to make his previous movie, The Frighteners, in 1996. When Gandalf had his big standoff scene with the Balrog, Sir Ian McKellen was actually acting to a green ping pong ball, which was used along with the green scheme technology employed during filming to give him and the other cast members a reference points for some of the larger CGI characters. And this is pretty common within CGI. It'll usually be like a ping pong ball or tennis ball, uh, uh, or even sometimes they'll even create like almost like a, a, a very simple like exoskeleton of whatever it is right um and mostly it, it it's to help the actor you know visualize where whatever their cgi is gonna be mm-hmm. uh during the council of Elrond leaves are continually falling in the ground or in the background suggests that this is a meeting that is taking place outside this meant about half a dozen crew members were positioned above the set dropping leaves at various intervals this also meant that the production department had to collect numerous sacks of leaves during autumn, and of course, dead leaves turned brown fairly quickly, which also meant that every one of those leaves had to be painted. Whew, that would be a job. This is the second time we've gone through a movie where they... Uh, Dirty let's, Dancing, let's I think it was, where leaves, they did it, yeah. remember? Uh, when filming the trilogy, Viggo Morrison got so into his character that during a conversation, Peter Jackson referred to him as Aragorn for over half an hour without him realizing <laughs> it. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, when Bilbo finds the ring at the start of the movie, Gollum cries out, My precious. However, Andy Serkis was not on set that day, so Dominic Monaghan stood in for him. Hmm. So Mary was doing that. No, not Mary. Mary? No. I think so. Hold on. Look at it. I think it's Mary. Uh, yeah. We'll look I, at it. I, Dominic I, I, Mo- yeah. Monaghan. Yeah. He's uh, Mary, yeah. Over 12.5 million plastic rings were made in order to fabricate simulated chainmail for the movie. Two crew members spent the length of the shoot linking the rings by hand into suits of armor. By the end of production, they had worn the fingerprints off their thumbs and index index fingers. Wow. Terrence, that sounds like a job for you. <laughs> Just sitting link rings Half all day. a million plastic rings. Twelve and a half million plastic rings. Man, there's no way. Uh, well, I mean, okay, so we, we uh, another person who was part of the, the, the costume design, which uh, I'm going to butcher this name. I know it. Yes. Uh, Niglia Dixon. I just said uh, her name not too long ago. I know. Ago. That's uh, I, I. I know. Um, so so she, her and forty other seamstresses uh, 
put together 19,000 costumes for 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 this movie. Do you not remember me reading that not too long ago? I must have <laughs> I like I'm 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 bouncing between looking through my own notes and trying to like delete the ones that you've already said and uh, <laughs> I, I I'll not hear one and that was one I forgot to delete. Oh, okay. I know. Uh, I think this is pretty cool. The orc blacksmith shown beneath Isengard are the actual the Weta workshop staff who made the weapons for this movie. So they throw them in a small part of the movie. I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, the scripts were essentially being rewritten every day of the 16-month shoot, including input from the actors and actresses who were all now heavily involved with their characters. Sean Bean swears that he was not actually in New Zealand on the day that they shot the scene where the Fellowship departs from Rivendell and that he must have been digitally added to the shot. Hmm. So I had to go back and look at that. Uh, when Frodo falls on the snow and loses the ring, a close-up of the ring with Frodo in the background is shown. In order to keep both the subject focused, a giant ring six inches in diameter was used. Wow. <laughs> I'd like to have that one in, in the studio. Um, if you watch the extended versions back to back to back, it would take you 681 minutes, 11 hours and 21 minutes, nearly half a day. It's been done. Several times. Yep. <laughs> uh, Gimli's line, Nobody Tosses a Dwarf, was filmed after the Toss Me line in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So because they were shooting them together, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Um, although Bill the Pony is a feature of the novel, the writers initially decided not to include him at all in the Fellowship making their journey for the simple logistical reason of transporting a horse deep into the mountains. The problem was uh, solved in more difficult shots by using the classic pantomime trick of dressing two people up as a horse, one on the front end and one on the back. <laughs> oh I didn't know that. All right, Terrence, I'll be the it's horse. Amazing. I'll be the head of the horse. We know <laughs> no. what you'll be. <laughs> uh, more than 1,600 pair of latex ears and feet were used during the shoot, each cooked in a special uh, oven running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There was no way of removing the feet at the end of the day without damaging them, and so uh, each pair could only be used once. Wow. They used The used feet were shredded to prevent a black market of stolen hobbit feet, <laughs> but apparently Mary kept a pair somehow. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, the Scream of the Ring Race is actually co-writer and co-producer Fran Walsh. Oh, wow. Uh, one of the indistinct words that Gandalf whispers to the moth when he's trapped by Saruman is Gwahir, the name of the eagle that later rescues him from the tower. Tom Bombadil. Uh, and what you're going to find out with this is there was so much uh, stuff from the books that was left out or changed, but it still made this story very interesting. So the book is different than the movie, as usual. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, so if you really like this movie and you want to dive into deeper, the the, the probably the book is more your t- style. Uh, but Tom Bombadil was a character from the book who never made it in the movie. He appears early on when he saves Frodo and Sam, who are trapped by an evil sin of willow tree after having just left the Shire. Peter Jackson originally contemplated having Bombadil incorporated into a cameo scene in which the hobbits are walking through the forest and see a man with a feathered cap dart through the trees. They then hear Tom singing and begin running through the forest. However, the production ran out of time to film it. Uh, uh, almost time. Fun. Almost. Uh, Aragorn battling the ring race at Weathertop was Viggo Morrison's first day on the set. It was also the first time that Morrison had ever handled a sword. Well, impressive. <laughs> that, and that must have been before all the... Uh... Training. All the training you put himself through. Uh, wherever possible, costume designer Nagila Dixon followed J.R. Tolkien's descriptions of the character's clothing to the letter. Uh, one such example is Bilbo Baggins' waistcoat, which sports brass buttons as referenced in The Hobbit. Sean Astin's scene underwater didn't really happen. He was filmed in a dry studio with fans making his cloak billow. The water effects were added in afterwards by computer, which was a very cool scene. Oh, yeah. 
Every actor and actress in this movie wore a wig, apart from Billy Jackson, Peter Jackson's toddler son, seen listening wide-eyed to the tale told by Bilbo Baggins at his birthday party. He already had the perfect hobbit hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know the one I'm saying. He's like, Ugh. Yeah. Uh, New Zealand's army was cast as extras for the largest battle scenes in the movie, but was forced to back out due to a commitment to serve as peacekeepers in East Timor. They also helped a lot on the set, just helping hands. Oh, yeah. They built bridges and all that stuff, too. Uh, when the fellowship comes out of hiding from the crows during the stop, or sorry, their stop on top of the hills, Gandalf says, "Spies of Saruman." However, during the first take of the scene, Sir Ian McKellen jokingly says, "Spies of Star Wars." <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Orlando Bloom spent two months learning how to fire a bow. The jeweler that made the different sized rings that were featured in the movies is in Nelson, New Zealand. Two of the rings, the biggest and the smallest, are there for public viewing. Oh, Road wow. trip. Put it on our world tour. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, the climatic fight scene was shot in the middle of a heat wave with temperatures in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 38 Oof. degrees Celsius. Many of the actors playing the uruk had to be carried off the set with heat exhaustion. I, I bet. Man, that's that's nuts. I mean, I you've mean, been in, you've been heat. in the Navy, and were you ever in Death Valley in training? Or uh, like no. Well, okay, so in, in full um, get up? we'd go up to uh, Fort Hunter Liggett uh, for our training, for our field training. And it'd be like we'd... Take a bus up. It's like a six-hour drive or so, um, and uh, that that would actually be one of the biggest things. And then, you know, we're we have all our gear on and everything, so you're you're carrying like you know, depending on your size, of course. I'm carrying like you know over seventy-five pounds of gear. Um, now, I I never had heat exhaustion. I was you know always trying to make sure I was hydrated and everything. But you know, every now and then you would get somebody who would end up falling out because we're doing all of uh, all this stuff in the heat and that we uh when our training fell in the summer it was it was always pretty terrible and <laughs> we would just hate life for the month and a half that we were out there <laughs> yeah um composers are usually involved with movies for about 6 to 8 weeks by the time this movie was released Howard Shore's involvement was stretching back for over 2 years oh wow yeah so he's been he was writing a lot of movies uh, Sauron, um, uh, and in the words they is chanting are one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the language of Mordor. Whenever Frodo puts the ring on, it is also Sauron speaking to him. So, um, that's pretty cool. The nocturnal screams of possums were used for the screeches made by the <laughs> orcs and mines of Moria. <laughs> That's that's great. Uh, they, and you'll come to, we'll talk about it here a little bit. They use a lot of animals and stuff for the screams oh, yeah. and stuff. Uh, Sean Aston reckons that there were uh, 50 separate days of the 16-month shoot where the hobbits had their prosthetic feet applied and they were never seen on the camera. <laughs> Wouldn't that be terrible? Uh, there? Yeah. They're like, oh, man, they didn't even make the scene. Oh, it's funny because they probably didn't even know until they saw the movie. That's what I'm saying. Well, <laughs> remember how we sat in that chair for two hours to put these feet in? Uh, the elves are speaking Sindarian, a fictional language which is influenced by the Welsh. Enya's lyricist, uh, lyricist Roman Ryan learned Elvish for the two songs she contributed to this movie. Terrence, I want you to do the whole podcast next week in Elvish. <laughs> uh, the scene of Bilbo finding the ring in the prologue was the last scene that Surium shot as Bilbo Baggins. The same scene was also the first that Martin Freeman shot as Bilbo for The Hobbit in An Unexpected Journey. Hmm. When the trailer was released on the internet on April 7, 2001, it was downloaded 1.6 million times in the first 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, that was the time of LimeWire, I want to say. <laughs> 
Liv Tyler had never read the book when she was approached to appear in the trilogy. She quickly uh, boned up on the Middle Earth lore to the extent of even learning some Elvish. So a lot of these, a lot of these people actually went and tried to learn some of the Elvish. And, language. and that's very different than what you see sometimes when when. Uh, and uh, of course, every actor has their own sort of sort of take on how they want to tackle this. But I, I do like how more or less everybody was like, well, I want to read the book so then, you know, I can I can portray these characters. The and, you, you know, you kind of wonder, like, if, if, like, let's say Liv Tyler saw Aragorn, you know, getting all into it, you know, walking all around with the set with his sword and all that, you know, or she seen he had or if Christopher Lee said, hey, you know, that ain't how Arwen would have done this, you know. Because yeah. in the book, she only speaks, like, once, and she's not even the one that saves for it, but it's actually Glorfindel. But what I'm saying, and this, she speaks once at, like, the very end of The Return of the King, too, hmm. so... Um, where are we at here? The large tree that stands above Bag End was built especially by the production department. Every leaf had to be manually attached to that thing. Oof. Wow. Lots uh, of work. New Line Cinema insists on a prologue of two minutes. What they received was one that lasts for seven and a half minutes. <laughs> the Tolkien estate was never in favor of director Peter Jackson's movie adaptation. But seeing as J.R. Tolkien signed the rights away in 1968 for $15,000, which was 99000 233 dollars in 2012 there was nothing that they could do about it tolkien's grandson simon tolkien came out in support of the production and was according to some accounts disowned by his relatives although simon's father christopher tolkien later denied this hmm fifteen thousand dollars man back in oh yeah 68. i mean the the this actually happens every now and then where uh someone will let go of their work in not knowing or just not believing that it'll ever happen, ever happen into that medium. Although, uh, I, I do know that um, near the uh, end of Tolkien's life, he, he did want to eventually see it uh, realized on screen in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, Mary wore a fat suit made of foam every day. He drank three liters of water every day so he would not dehydrate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Gollum looks different in this movie, like we said, because the scheduling force still seems to be filmed based on early design before even before Andy Serkis was cast into the role. So, During Bilbo's party, Pippin can be seen in the band playing a guitar. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, if, we had a, if we had to name the uh, Hobbit band, what would the name be? <laughs> the ho- a Hobbit band? Yeah. I don't know. The, the Hungry something? <laughs> <laughs> Second breakfasts. <laughs> uh, Bilbo Baggins. Um, well, we already talked about that. The uh, <laughs> overall budget for the trilogy was three hundred million plus another two hundred million for publicity and marketing. Uh, some of the customers in the Prancing Pony are walking around on stilts to emphasize the height difference with the hobbits. I didn't know that either. That's new. Uh, a security was tied on the set. At least three people arrested for attempting break-ins. Oh wow! I uh, guess I'm not surprised. Would you have tried to break in? Heck no. <laughs> I'm going to try to peek, though. (laughs) There are several close-ups of fingers toying with a ring. While some have lovely cuticles and nails, some look quite ragged. The latter are Elijah Wood's hands. He had a habit of biting his nails. (laughs) About 28 separate hobbit holes had to be built for the Shire. Each one had to be different. Production designer Grant Major personally supervised the translation of all the writings in Balin's tomb into Dwarvish. He was then horrified to learn that a visiting J.R.R. Tolkien scholar had taken great offense at seeing the phrase, Joe was here, on the writings. 
<laughs> they schooled the contents of Bayless too from top to bottom and found nothing, only to learn that the scholar, who was very overly seriously about everything to do with Tolkien, had been told by this uh, this by a crew carpenter who had had a, having a joke at his expense. <laughs> that is absolutely Can you imagine? hilarious. Because the mind of Morgan was uh, Bayless too was huge. I had that elven or that dwarven stuff all over the place, and Joe was here. Can you imagine scurrying? I'd be oh, so man. mad. That's so great, though. Uh, the voices of the Black Riders heard when they reached the Shire before Gandalf returns and when Arwen carries Frodo across the river were provided by Andy Serkis, who played Gollum. Here you go, Terrence. 1,460 eggs were served to the cast and crew for breakfast every day for shooting. Wow. That's a lot of eggs. That, that is a lot of eggs. The four actors playing the young hobbits would go have to go into makeup at 5 a.m. and stand for an hour and a half while their prosthetic feet were being applied. Sean Astin's personal makeup artist doing this was named Sean Foote. James Horner was contacted to compose this music uh, for the movie, but was unavailable because of his work on A Beautiful Mind. The choice of Howard Shore as a composer took some people by surprise because he was associated with dark thrillers and never worked on an epic movie of this scale. Both Horner and Shore were Oscar-nominated for the respective scores, with Shore ultimately winning with his first Academy Award for this movie. So that was something that that we were surprised about when we were looking at uh, the box office numbers, because um, we, we saw a beautiful mind came out that year in two thousand one. It came out the weekend, the same weekend yeah. that this did, and we were just surprised that it didn't rank higher. Right? Uh, there was a lot of good movies that year, though. Yeah, except Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, now I'm going to get another Facebook post from Sam Farrell. I like it. I already know. Uh, Peter Jackson has the entire bag in set in storage. Oh, wow. Casey, he was like, hey, kids, I got a playground for you. <laughs> uh, one of the stuntmen dislocated his shoulder in the scene where the hobbits tumbled down the hill after pilfering for the vegetables. This was also on the first day of shooting. So first day of shooting, you wow. put your shoulder out. Of- Great start. Uh, oh, I, uh, I do have a little tidbit of information. The The very first scene they, they filmed, uh, obviously, was the, uh, the that particular scene. And then when they're hiding from the, uh, the Nazgul... Um, they, the reason why Peter Jackson wanted to film that scene first is because he wanted all the hobbits together on their first scene so they can, you know, build rapport and get that uh, um, sort of stre- screen chemistry between each other um, before they had to, you know, split them apart and go from there. <clears throat> the sounds of the orcs were in part recordings of elephant seal pups at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California a marine mammal hospital that rescues, rehabilitates, and releases sick and injured seals, sea lions, whales, and dolphins. Hmm. Uh, this movie stayed in the U.S. top 10 grossing movies for 13 weeks. During one take of the Buckleberry Ferry scene, a very strong splinter found its way through Dominic Monaghan's prosthetic foot into his own, causing him considerable pain. While crew members took the splinter out of his foot, Monaghan bragged to his fellow hobbits as to how large the splinter would be, but it ended up being very small. From that point on, Billy Boyd would tease him about splinters whenever something happened to Dominic, much to Dominic's frustration. <laughs> you know, sometimes when you get splinters, they it feels a lot worse. It feels worse like a than, big old stick. Yeah. You know, like it's only, but same thing, with kidney, about, same thing with kidney stones, man. I, I could yeah. tell you the whole thing about those. <laughs> uh, the big tree and Lothlorien forest are made of rubber. Uh, Sir Christopher Lee broke his left hand after he slammed it in his hotel door. The injury is obviously seen as Saruman jeers at the fellowship's plight on the Karahadras. Uh, the main sound elements for the Cave Trolls' roar were a walrus, a tiger, and a horse. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So, lions and tigers and bears, they got everything. <laughs> for the role of alerts, it took 11 hours for Lawrence McCor's full costume and makeup to be applied. 11, 11 hours. hours! 
half a day just to wow man and probably for only like one shoot, you know. <laughs> I'd be like, just let me sleep in it. Right. Uh, while filming the scenes on the River Anduin, Orlando Bloom and John Reese Davies were swept out of their boats. Bilbo's cake caught fire. We already told it. But sir, uh, <laughs> yeah, when his cake caught on fire, Sir Aram Holm gamely finished the scene. The portraits hanging above the fireplace and bag end are based on the likeness of Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh. I think that's pretty cool. That is pretty awesome. Wellington, the capital of New Zealand, changed its name to Middle Earth for the movie's opening. <laughs> Oh, here we go. What about this? The water used on the Rivendell set was brought in and contained chlorine. The entire water system had to be waterproof so that the chlorinated water would not leak into the ground and contaminate natural water. After shooting was finished, the water was collected back. So that goes back to they were filming in uh, national parks and, you know, highly protected areas and stuff. Right. Uh, large amounts of hair had to be imported into New Zealand for all the wigs. They found some women in <laughs> Russia who were cutting their hair and selling it to filmmakers. <laughs> great. Uh, during filming, uh, Liv Tyler left a pair of her prosthetic ears on the dashboard of her car. When she returned, they had melted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Gallagher's house at Lothlorien was the largest miniature set built for the trilogy. Oh, wow. That, that's that's impressive. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I thought that would have been like Minas Tealith or something like that, you know? Because Lawrence uh, Mikora's vision was impaired uh, when he was made up to look like Lurtz, he could not pull punches during the sequences he battles Aragorn in hand-to-hand combat. Rather than having Mikor do this sequence over and over until he could pull his punches, Viggo Morrison decided to fight back just as realistically, <laughs> making the physical blows completely real. He's like, forget this, just swing at me. Um, in the entire trilogy, Legolas speaks only five words to Frodo, and you have my bow. During the scene at the Council of Elrond, it could even be argued that these words weren't even named at Frodo, but at the entire council. Right. <laughs> so, Legolas <laughs> was stuck up to the Hobbit. Um, let's see here. Dominic Monaghan suffered from hay fever while filming the scene in the cornfield. Wow. That is unfortunate. Uh, John Aston, Sean Aston's stepfather, was considered for the role of Gandalf. He had also worked with Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh before in The Frighteners. And came back very excited about their passion for the film, which led to Sean Astin to pursue the role of Sam. Pregnancy changed Peter Jackson's vision of Lord of the Rings. Originally, he wanted to cast Lucy Lawless, you know who that is? Xena. Oh, yeah. As yep, yep, yep. Galadriel. And Uma Thurman as Arwen. Oh, wow. Kill Bill. Uh, unfortunately, both became pregnant after being asked to read, and the roles were filled by <laughs> Kate Blanchett and Liv Tyler, respectively. Thuman was also considered to play Eowyn in later installments, but Miranda Otto landed that role. In the Mines of Moria, the battery for Seer and Ian McCallum's illuminated staff was hidden within the folds of his robes. That's super cool. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, they had to use all, all these interesting tricks. And then nowadays you have, you know, prop replicas that just light up. Yeah, like, <laughs> like lithium batteries or something. Right. Uh, Liv Tyler was scared to operate a car during filming in New Zealand as she was accustomed to driving on uh, on the right in the United States. She often had Orlando Bloom drive around as he was familiar with driving on the left side because of England. Um, so that makes sense. I'd be scared too. Uh, well, that's like uh, uh, when I learned to drive, I was in Japan. So when I came back to the States, it was super weird. <laughs> <laughs> 29 Ringwraith costumes were made. Elijah Wood never wore a full chainmail mithril vest, only the top half of it. Uh, if you look carefully at the left-hand margin of Bilbo's book when Frodo is flipping through it at Rivendell, just before he turns to look at the map, you can briefly see the names of all 13 doors featured in The Hobbit. Bilbo also mentions wanting to go and see Lake Town again in the same scene. So it's another throwback to The Hobbit. Uh, 
Those tiny uh, little details. Sir Anthony Hopkins and Kate Winslet turned down roles in the trilogy. Oh, wow. Well, here you go. You ready for this one? The Beatles. You know who the Beatles are, Terrence? Of course. Okay. The Beatles wanted to star in an adaptation of The Lord of the Rings and asked Stanley Kubrick to direct. <laughs> Kubrick declined feeling the book was unfilmable. The cast would have been Paul McCartney as Frodo, George Harrison as Gandalf, Ringo Starr as Samwise, and John Lennon as Gollum. That's hilarious. Uh, I kind of uh, wish that happened. I know. I kind of wish I could have seen it. Uh, we already talked about they made over 45,000 uh, prosthetics. Um, Hugo Weaving was recovering from the flu during the filming of the scene where Elrond talks to Gandalf at Rivendell, and as a result, he had a hoarse voice. Co-writer Philippa or Philippa Boyens remarked on the DVD commentary that she felt it actually enhanced the quality of his voice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, when the hobbits are shown reacting to Gandalf's fireworks at Bilbo's party, they were actually reacting to a flashing light and an air horn. Wow. The things you got to do. <laughs> I know. Um... According to Sean Astin in the extended DVD commentary, when Bilbo drops the ring before leaving the Hobbs, remember when he's like, uh, Bilbo, the ring, and he's like, oh, yeah. and he drops it. Um, the floor was magnetic to prevent the ring from bouncing around when it drops the floor. This was done to demonstrate the importance and the weight of the ring. Im- impactful scene. Oh, yeah. Because absolutely. you're just like, you know? I-, I love the scene following, too, where um, you know he pulls it out of the fire uh, with-, with the fire tongs, and he's like, uh, he's like, oh, don't worry quite cool he just <laughs> drops it in his hand and then you know he has that little jump like it's going to be hot and then he realizes it's not hot at all right and- uh the ironic part about the fellowship mourning the loss of gandalf was at this point none of the cast members had even met sir ian mckellen let alone seen him dressed up as the wizard <laughs> <laughs> uh the dummy um, and this i saw this at the uh the exhibit i was telling you about downtown yeah. here the dummy of Sean Beam's body seen at the end was so convincing that a crew member, while taking lunch, asked the other cast members if he wanted anything. Because down there at the exhibition, they actually had him in the boat with his arms crossed yeah. and his sword laying on him. And, dude, you could look at his face. Dude, I I Very promise detailed. you, I thought, I thought it was a man. I thought it was a person laying there. Because even his beard, dude, his beard was on there. Yeah. And they had it like, an, it was probably like laying on this desk here. And they had like a glass case around it. And you, I was like, bro. I was like, this is like real stuff. It was. I wish I could have took a picture of that. I couldn't. They they wouldn't let photography in there to damage it. Would damage yeah. the stuff. But I had like seen like the cave troll miniatures and all that. It was amazing. They had all the costumes. I wish it'd come back. Um, we all know Sean Beam dies in almost every movie he's in or TV show. Yep. Uh, but he says Boromir's death in this movie is his favorite death scene on screen. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was it was it was very impactful. Uh, Oh, yeah. It's a very touching scene. Uh, Sean Beam is wearing a fiberglass bodysuit underneath his costume in his death scene. To, oh, spoiler, he dies. Uh, <laughs> as necessary to stop the arrows from sticking in him from wobbling around. They, oh, yeah, stuck in. yeah. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen enjoyed... Oh, we already talked about that, too. The body count for this movie, 118. Wow. Uh, Gandalf tells Aragorn to run from the Balrog, saying, Swords are no use here. However, when Gandalf and the Balrog fight, they are both initially holding swords. Hmm. So, Terrence. One little bit. Uh, Anything else? It's it's a pretty well-known fact, but um, for those who maybe don't know or for those who maybe stay away from the internet, good on you, by the way. (laughs) But um, the the scene where uh, Aragon is fighting the, the, like, almost the the captain uh, Urukai, um, when the Urukai throws a knife at him. Lurch, uh, you mean? uh, uh, Was that that his name? That Lurtz is the head Urukai guy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it was supposed to be a snapshot cut where he's supposed to fake throwing the knife, 
and then you know they pan the camera and it looks like it was thrown. He actually accidentally threw the knife, and Vigo actually blocked said knife. Like that whole scene is real, and I just think that's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Terrence, give me your thoughts on the Fellowship of the Ring. Amazing movie, and that's not that this time. It's not just saying it because of nostalgia's sake. I mean, you can just based off a lot of the facts we read, and, and if you have the extended editions, you've probably seen some of the special features, if not all of them. If you haven't, it's definitely something to own. Uh, you know, especially in this era where you know you can download movies at a touch of a button. This one's worth owning on DVD because of the massive amount of special features there is, and it shows. The, the care that went into this movie, a lot of small details was done um, right down to the different clothing of all the different characters that aren't even named to the ones who are, uh, you know, like Jimbo was saying earlier, just right down to the brass buttons on Bilbo's shirt because uh, it said so in the book. Um, the editing that was done, uh, the musical score, uh, Everything is just so phenomenal, and everybody, you can tell that everybody loved doing this, everybody loved working on it, and uh, it shows in the final product. Uh, amazing movie, top to bottom, uh, absolutely one of my favorites from, I, I always watch all three in sequence, I can't not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh There's, I have, I've like, the only qualm I had was what I said earlier, sometimes I don't have a concept of how much time has passed, but it's it's such a small nitpick that I have to pull out because I really have nothing negative to say about this movie. Now, some people might say uh, it, it's it's boring, and like I said before, especially when I was younger, uh, you know, a lot of younger kids were were falling asleep, and I've even known, you know, even nowadays, you know, some people try to watch and, and fall asleep, maybe. And of the three movies, yes, it's the slower paced one, but it it it, it builds up that's it shows the the character development and all that stuff uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for it gives context to the rest of the movies you know you gotta have that slow build up to appreciate the impact that the other two movies well if you want if you want to compare it in the way of Marvel movies you had the you always have like your origin movie yeah exactly. you know you have to take time to develop the characters in the origin movie and then once you then you get like a civil war and then you get, you get your civil all that Wars and in your games, end game and you know? all that stuff uh, that you appreciate so much more now that you have the final picture exactly exactly and and so it's it's incredible um if, if you haven't seen it at this point uh you've listened to us talk about it for X amount of time, probably hour plus, uh, definitely go watch it uh, if you've made it this far and haven't seen it. But uh, for those who have, um, you more than likely know what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I've been, I've enjoyed not only this movie, but things that have spun off from this movie, you know, the, the, the sequels of this movie, board games, video games, I mean, uh, just all kinds of stuff, the the prop replicas and me and Jimbo were talking earlier one of the first things I got after watching this movie I got a, a cool little uh, Lord of the Rings bookmark and the little tassel had the the, the, the one ring on it um, just just I love this movie and it, <laughs> it, it is an incredible movie I think what really can be said about this movie is it has something for everyone we didn't even talk about um, the love story and the forbidden love because Aragorn and Arwen are in love and her dad 
It's like, look, you know, it's not right. You're going to live for thousands of years, and this guy is a human being, and he's going to die off. He's going to get old, and you're just yeah. still going to be young. You know, you're still going to be young. And, you know, she can basically give up her immortality or whatever yep. to become basically human, if you will. Not yeah. you know she's an elf, but, um, but there's adventure, there's peril, there's danger, there's pain, there's death, there's friendship, there's loss, there's... Um, all kinds of stuff in here. There's something in here for everybody. Oh, yeah. It's a movie that takes you through all the spectrum of emotions. And then once you see the rest of the series, which we'll cover eventually, like I told you before, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Um, you, you can see around oh, my yeah, room, I've got all here. these autographs and everything. Um, but this movie is just so well done. Um, I, You know, so Star Wars you can nitpick to death uh, just for the timing and everything. This movie, These movies are hard to find anything wrong with them. Uh, just for everything said, the score, the, the, the actors, everything about it. Um, you'd be like, well, fantasy's not really my thing. Well, this is, this, I'm telling you, give this movie a shot. And once you get to the end of this movie, if you don't want to keep watching the rest, then I don't know what to tell you. But I'm just saying, this is a, a great movie. It's definitely in my top five of the trilogy is definitely in my top five of all time. Oh yeah. Um, easily. Hands down. Easily. Hands down. I'd even put a top three. Yeah, one, two, and three. <laughs> uh, but we've been rattling on long enough. We're at an hour and a half already. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, but see, like this, we were talking about it. It doesn't even seem that long. But I can tell Terrence, Terrence is starting to get tired. He's starting to look like Gollum. He went from Smeagol. <laughs> now he's looking like Gollum. So I think we're going to start wrapping this up. Any other last words? No, I got nothing. Uh, right. If you made it this far, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy Veterans Day to all you veterans out there. Thank you for your service. Thanks, Terrence, for your service for our country. Um, we love you guys. Um, if you want to reach out to us, uh, tragedyofcinema at gmail.com. Uh, you can join our Facebook page, uh, the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. This is what I challenge people to do. If, if you've made it this far and you do have, if you put this on a lower scale than me and Jimbo, because we, we tend to sometimes butt heads with our audience, you know, uh, we, we've not liked a couple <laughs> Die Hard's not a Christmas movie <laughs> there. I had to get we, it <laughs> We've, uh, we, we've definitely, uh, you know, criticize some some beloved movies um and this is one of ours and if if for some reason uh there's some criticisms you think that we may have missed i I would definitely be interested to hear that Uh, i I want to hear maybe from a different perspective because i I have nothing but love for this movie and knowing all about it i will make terrence read them on the air next week (laughs) oh by the way speaking of next week are you ready for this me and terrence to discuss it and guess what we're not afraid we will not be censored. We are going to do. We are going to do Blazing Saddles. We're finally doing a Mel Brooks movie. We're doing Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. Now we're going to tread lightly in certain areas of this movie <laughs> because we have to. But uh, you know, it's 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 a movie that we're going to cover because yeah. I don't want it to be so censored on TV that we forgot where we came from and for people just to have a good time. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Because we've talked about this. I mean, we'll talk about it next week, but. So be on the lookout so for watch, Blazing Saddles. Watch Blazing Saddles and prep for next week. Well, just saying, uh, when you watch Blazing Saddles, oh, there's yeah. a disclaimer at the beginning of our episodes for a reason. Absolutely. And this the, one definitely is going to fall on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's definitely falling there. So, well, with that being said, this episode's coming to a close. And that's a wrap. And, and cut. cut.